Welcome back to Game Investing Radio. Hopper here to talk about the most important origin story in the industry. As you may or may not know, the video game Crash, after the golden age in the early 80s, is often blamed on E.T. But there's a story behind the story. It really wasn't because of just one game release. Of course, that was a terrible game, rushed to market, you know, thrown on holiday shelves, and it's an easy scapegoat because it got dumped in the landfills of uh, New Mexico, I do believe. But there's another story that I think is much more important, complicated, and relevant if the historic box rises in value as we go into mid and long-term investing. Now remember, my 10-box system, catalyst, rarity, scarcity, nostalgic, popular, iconic, significant, historic, artistic, and hype, up until the German streamer Montana Black, we were running a nine-box system where nostalgia was primarily driving the markets. We are now seeing a new market driven by hype, which proves that any one of these boxes can pass another box and that the market is dynamic and what came before may not come in the future. So if you think that everything in the future is going to be driven by nostalgia, you can throw that out the window when a guy like Montana Black comes online. He introduced a country of 83 million to heritage auctions and WADA overnight. You've got hype and demand. Same thing happened when Atari imploded and i'll get into that story shortly and nintendo invaded america and became the dominant um console and dominant library of software that was in demand and remember demand is really what investing is all about game investing is about demand not about supply Collectors love to focus on rarity and supply, but really the key in long-term investing is forecasting demand. So what is the story? Where did Mario come from? We all know Mario is the most important piece in game investing. We're looking at an all-time record, world record, coming in April. Um, last year it was set by uh, Super Mario 3, which Miyamoto developed as his masterpiece looking back. I understand that was a two-year project that uh, required, uh, you know, 12-hour days, seven days a week. Some people turned into alcoholic, caffeine addicts. Families were almost torn apart. Um, they put every ounce of energy, blood, sweat, and tears into Super Mario Brothers 3. And I'm glad that it set a world record last year with Heritage Auctions at about $156,000 all in. But where did Mario come from? That was really something later in the timeline. Several years after the crash, uh, Atari really was pretty much finished at this time. So let's turn the clock back and look at the transition from Atari dominating the landscape after inventing gaming out of Silicon Valley on the west coast of the United States, all the way to Super Mario jumping on uh, the black boxes with 8-bit art that was dumbed down because Nintendo was so scared about consumers uh, having a bad taste of ho you know home console gaming and um, you know trying to give them what they would see in the arcade if they were uh, if they were playing the cabinets or um, if they were coming from Atari it would be you know the blocky eight bit 
graphics. And let's not forget, they're the same generation, 8-bit as far as I'm concerned. Actually, I, brought, I better check that. But I do believe the initial Famicom and the 265200 uh, were 8-bit were technology. So you know what I say at the end of every podcast episode. Today we're going to say early, play life like a video game. Try, try, try again. Try, try, try it. Try, try, try it. Try again. Get through setback, failure, 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 and you will become a master. And that's exactly what Nintendo did. Super Mario Brothers on the American NES came out of the ashes of three major game industry failures. So the first failure was radar scope. Um, I don't know much about the game. Um, you can you can look at uh, Donkey Kong on Wikipedia and get a little bit about that. Um, at this time, Gunpei Yokoi, who basically invented the D-pad, from what I understand, as well as the light gun, um, which was translated into the Game & Watch, the NES, and pretty much every company has used a version of that. He was really the man in the beginning. Um, but due to the radar scope failure with cabinets laying around in America, sitting there doing nothing, earning nothing, bleeding out, they turned to a young designer by the name of Shigeru Miyamoto. And he wasn't really a programmer. As you may or may not know, he was more of an artist. Um, I believe his dreams were quite different than programming, but uh, he was a brilliant storyteller. And that's really what um, that's really what uh, what changed the whole game development process. And I'll get into the punchline here in just a second. But let's get back to Radar Scope. So Radar Scope sitting there in a in a warehouse, and the president of Nintendo's saying, "We've got to do something. We can't just bleed out here." And he turns to Miyamoto after. Um, trying to, well, actually license. They were trying to license Popeye, which is the second failure. But the first failure, Radar Scope, is they've got boards, they've got cabinets, they've got screens, they've got, you know, coin receptacles. They've got machines sitting there, and they need to do something with them, right? So what they're thinking about is, well, we can redo the circuit board. We can uh, change the change the characters, um, we can use the existing CPUs, maybe update the ROMs, um, same monitor. It says here the font, the upper HUD, the scoreboard, and the character set were almost identical for Donkey Kong and Radar Scope. There's a, just a little bit of color differences. Um, the memory capacity was similar, and uh, Mario and all the moving objects were sprites. They're saying that the board came from Galaxian, was a derivative of the Galaxian board, which was good for moving a lot of large number of enemies around. So that's probably why Donkey Kong was so smooth on the second screen. You were able to run so many barrels down the ladders and all that type of stuff. But basically, Radar Scope was a failure. They brought Miyamoto on to rework it and not really rework the cabinet, um, but find something that they could 
put into the radar scope cabinet and and remodel it so you know that includes the artwork on the front the story the title of the game um the physical physical um makeup of the cabinet i guess was the same but um i'm guessing that this was a way to save money i mean it was a way to turn a failure into a gamble that turned out to be the most brilliant thing that's ever happened in gaming so what was the second failure that brought Miyamoto on? Well, that was a licensing deal, which is also part of the third failure. But there was a licensing deal that Nintendo was trying to put together for the Popeye, Scomic, uh, Popeye comic strip. I'm not sure of who that is, but I'm assuming that's somewhere in America. It could be West Coast. Um, well, actually, let's click on Popeye. Um, Popeye was created by LZ Chrysler Segar. It was a comic strip. So you could almost say today is about the origin story of Mario, which is Jumpman, as we all know. But you could almost say the origin of mainstream gaming uh, on the NES came from comics because Popeye was a comic strip. He wasn't, um, he wasn't really. A game until um, Nintendo came along. So Nintendo was trying to put together a license with Popeye and Miyamoto really looked at the Popeye comic strip. He looked at Hollywood. He looked at uh, Beauty and the Beast. He looked at King Kong. He was looking across the ocean, across the Pacific Ocean to Hollywood. He was an artist. He was young at Nintendo. He was probably thinking out of the box. Uh, he had nothing to lose. You know, he, he was not the king of gaming at this time. He was a young guy. Uh, Gunpei Yokoi was his, his, you know, leader probably. And he was coming in to bring art into the game and storytelling and characters. And that's really what happened. He basically settled. He tried a lot of different ideas. Um, you know, he was trying to avoid being, uh, quote-unquote, evil or repulsive. Um... He wanted to create a quote-unquote funny, hang-loose kind of guy. Um, and he was talking about King Kong being a scary character versus Donkey Kong kind of being a, a dumbed-down, friendly gorilla. And basically, he settled on a love triangle between a gorilla carpenter and his girlfriend. So that was really mirrored after Bluto, Popeye, and Olive Oil. So it wasn't about Mario. Um, that was just a carpenter, quote-unquote. So since the Nintendo um, licensing deal wasn't really happening at the time, it says that Popeye games were eventually released. So I do believe I read somewhere else that the president of Nintendo wanted to, you know, um, get Miyamoto to make a Popeye game, but due to the failed, I guess it wasn't a failed licensing deal, it was the failed uh, timeline, um, you know, because of the radar scope failure, the pressure to get those cabinets out and earning money, the licensing deal with Popeye um, was being delayed. I do believe that Miyamoto had no choice but to think out of the box and create something on, on his own, which was a derivative of those other properties. So uh, we see this all the time in business. You know, you copy something, you make it better. Like, let's take Tesla electric vehicles. I mean, electric vehicles were invented hundreds of years ago. Porsche was the first uh, guy that put a hybrid on the, on the roads and won a race, I think something like 
120 years ago. So electric cars are nothing new. Um, you know, um, Elon Musk just bought a great uh, electric car company in Silicon Valley and and ran with it and made it better and and went into battery technology. That's what Miyamoto did. What he basically changed, he did the same thing. He did the same love triangle. He did the same characters. They used the radar scope board. They, they didn't really do anything new, but the real difference in the development process was this became the first game. I do believe it says here the first video game where the storyline preceded the game's programming, quote unquote, Wikipedia. So let me repeat that. Donkey Kong was the first video game, from what I understand, where the story came before the electronic game piece. In other words, the programming and the and the design, actually typing on a keyboard and and uh, creating the game. Up until then, I guess um, most game development started on the keyboard. So Miyamoto really is not really the godfather of gaming. He's the godfather of story-based game development, which is what we have today when you talk about moving into digital, moving into virtual worlds. It's all about the story and then the worlds and the characters. He didn't realize that his characters would go on to become billion-dollar franchises, but they have. And that's really interesting because you know, that wasn't a big investment. It wasn't really a big risk. They had a couple thousand radar scope cabinets sitting there. They they asked a young artist to come on board and give us an out-of-the-box, uh, you know, idea on a story. And looking back, I mean, who would have guessed that Miyamoto would have birthed a billion-dollar franchise that, you know, in a couple years or a couple months is going to land in Universal Studios and these characters and these storylines are going to be um, rides and interactive displays and food and backpacks and jewelry and 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 real world um, entertainment that we're going to be able to touch and feel and smell and ride. And it, it's just so amazing that this came out of these two failures in business with this radar scope. Uh, uh, cabinet failure and then this licensing deal that got delayed with uh, with the comic strip so that really brings us to the arcade cabinet donkey kong which which they didn't they didn't really know was going to take off because things like galaxian space invaders you know a lot of shooters were doing well that's what it says here at wikipedia and uh you know, the employees were like, this is going to be a hit. This is going to be a hit. So they call up uh, Nintendo of America up in Washington. And um, it's a skeleton crew, they say. And and the skeleton crew of about five people, including wives and and uh, marketing and artists and warehouse managers, they convince a, a couple bars in Seattle, Washington to set up Donkey Kong. And uh, the, the, the cabinet starts earning 30 bucks a day, which is an incredible an incredible run that's like 120 plays per day which is just insane um that's all she wrote i mean once you're doing 100 plays a day in a bar by the way gaming did start in a bar pong um atari's first cabinet was in a bar in silicon valley you can go there probably i hope the bar is still open i hope to go there someday and and do a podcast from that origin point but, um, you know, if you're getting 100 plays a day in a bar back in the early 80s, you're doing very well. 
and that led to you know requesting more units and uh you know that's all she wrote the little five six ten person company up in nintendo uh, washington turned into a juggernaut in the industry over the next decade so what was the third failure that led to the piece that is on today's artwork for today's podcast well the holy grail popped up on ebay today and i couldn't resist dropping um a podcast episode because I had been keeping this secret, and I know there's people out there in the uh, old guard, quote-unquote, Robin Mihara calls them. These are people that have been collecting for 10 or 20 years. They know exactly what's rare. They know variations. They know timelines. Uh, they know trademarks, registered trademarks, uh, codes on the back, box variations, cart manual variations, pack-ins, pack-outs. So long story short, Donkey Kong was supposed to be licensed by Atari. Nintendo was supposed to be under Atari during the Golden Age, transitioning into the home console age that the NES came thereafter. It was not supposed to be Famicom come to the United States, blow up the market, and save the day with Rob the Robot. That was not the storyline. At the time, during the Golden Age, or at the tail end of the Golden Age, even though E.T. was, you know, E.T. and Pac-Man were failing, they were selling millions and millions of units. So from a business standpoint, Atari, Atari still have, you know, Atari was the elephant in the room. If you wanted to make a dent in gaming, you had to go through Atari. And that's exactly what Nintendo did. Japanese companies are very respectful, and that's exactly what they did. They sat down with Atari. And they hammered out a deal. And they had a deal. They had a licensing deal pretty much done. It was in the hopper. Lawyers were involved. I'm sure there was paperwork. You can look up one of the stories under the Atari lost deal. Google Atari's lost deal for the Nintendo NES. It's on Atari.io. And basically Nintendo of Japan and Atari of Silicon Valley had a deal to where Atari was going to bring everything over and get a cut of the action. In other words, they were going to distribute the Famicom as an Atari NES. They were going to get the license for uh, Donkey Kong, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it looks like there was a couple stories behind the story, behind the large licensing deal failure that led to the ColecoVision Donkey Kong anomaly that we'll talk about at the end because this is about game investing. So all the high ups at Nintendo and Atari are flying on airplanes. They're going back and forth between Silicon Valley, Washington, Japan. They're talking about uh, chips and consoles in the future and the Famicom and Donkey Kong. Um, they're talking about Coleco. They're talking about PC rights versus home console rights versus arcade rights. And really, this game, the golden age is all about arcades. Everything started in the arcade. If the arcade blew up, there's going to be ports. It's a, it was a pretty simple game in the beginning. It wasn't about characters and worlds and, and uh, storylines. It was really about coins dropping every day, cash flow. These were businesses. And a lot of people forget that gaming was a business in the beginning. Um, you know, Atari invented a coin-operated Pong. That was the first game. It was not the 2600. It was not cartridges uh, stuck into a machine. That was free gaming. 
And that's why that took off. I grew up in the golden age. The reason we went to home console or PC gaming is because we ran out of quarters. We wanted to game more than five minutes at a time. And that's really the competitive advantage of home console and PC gaming. Once you throw out that initial, you know, $1,000 at the time, it, it costs upwards of two or 3000 for an Apple II. Then you can game for free, theoretically, if you could copy those games on cassette or floppy or maybe borrow cartridges or rent cartridges to Blockbuster, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So gaming was not born out of home console gaming. And I think a lot of people think that the NES was first. It was not. It was an alternative. It was a really cheap little alternative. You can just pop under the television in the living room and boom, that, that was your, your ticket to gaming real quick for a long time for free. Um, and, and, you know, the first generation of gamers didn't have games dropping under the Christmas tree. There was no free gaming. We had to save up quarters for weeks and weeks and weeks and then gamble on new cabinets every time at the arcade we've never heard of. There was no internet. We had to drop quarters to basically try, try, try again, fail, 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 and try to become a master by putting your money where your mouth is. So basically what I'm saying is that gaming was a business. It always has been. Um, it always will be. Um, if the game's not making money, it's really not going to continue forward into the digital age. And that's why you're seeing Fortnite, Minecraft selling, you know, two to five hundred um, million units, a half a billion units converted from Fortnite, one point eight billion in revenues. You're going to see Fortnite go on forever, probably because it's got that customer base. So what really was happening is Atari in America was trying to do a business licensing deal with Nintendo of Japan. And these are two juggernaut companies um, dominating their home countries, trying to, you know, shoot it out over the uh, West Coast of America and maybe the East Coast debut, which ended up um, being uh, where Nintendo dropped the first, uh, you know, Matt Sticker sealed NES games, which are going to go down as the holy grails, but that might be another, there might be another failure we didn't talk about, like the bad taste they got in their mouth from dealing with uh, Atari and, and Hollywood and, you know, Warner Brothers and all that on the West Coast. Maybe they said, you know what, we're going to drop the NES on the East Coast. This is just me speaking out of opinion. I have no, uh, no uh, proof of that, but uh, I do know that there must have been some reason they went East first. So they had the deal set up. You know, they had the deal. Atari was going to drop the Famicom as an Atari console or get licensing rights and do the distribution. They were going to drop Donkey Kong as an Atari first title. And then 1983 comes along. And I don't know if this is exactly before E.T. or after E.T., but I don't think it really matters. I think what really happened in the gaming crash was some of this nasty stuff I'm going to go over right now. Here's one of the things that happened. At the time, um, Nintendo had given the rights to Coleco for um, home gaming of Donkey Kong. And given, I shouldn't say given, I should say uh, royalties. So every unit that Coleco sold in the Americas, um, Nintendo would get a, a paycheck. It, it's more like a royalty deal. So, you know, Nintendo basically just gives them permission in exchange for a cut of the action. And they did the same with Atari. And that was very, uh, you know, very demo democratic of Nintendo to give the, the PC license to Atari and the cartridge license to 
ColecoVision, which actually had a 16-bit uh, machine on the on the market for a little while, and they actually are a very significant, I think, a very very significant part of the historical timeline of gaming in America. I think you cannot rule out ColecoVision and Fairchild for inventing the cartridge-based system if you are a serious game investor looking for long long-term consoles with pack-ins with cartridges so what happened in 1983 at ces Con consumer electronics show which i believe is in vegas which became um one of the uh uh i think that became another computer show which became the billionaire which became the guy that owns the palazzo i'm not really sure about that but that's another story for another day um Back in the day, it was all about PC. Real gamers played PC. We paid Apple IIs, Commodore 64s, Atari 8-bit 400 and 800. PC, PC, PC. PC drew, drove the whole industry. It wasn't the 2600. It wasn't console gaming. It wasn't home gaming. Um, I'm talking about golden age. You know, When you're done at the arcade, you go home and you tinker, program, modify your PC, copy games, play games. You're more like tinkering with games because you're you're really a PC guy. And when I say PC, I'm not talking about Windows. I'm talking about Apple II, Commodore 64, and Atari. So Coleco gets the cartridge rights. Atari gets the PC rights. So that's how they were able to do Atari Soft Donkey Kongs, which I'm, 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 I'm under the understanding you could play on the Apple II. So Atari has the... So Atari had the PC rights. Nintendo uh, gave the cartridge rights to Coleco. And at the time, remember, Coleco, I do believe, is like a successful toy maker. I think they've already done a lot of handhelds. And back in the day when I started gaming, it was all about Mattel, Coleco, Atari. Uh, it wasn't Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft. They weren't even in the game yet. Um, really, the American companies that had electronic games were really running the industry. So Nintendo, you know, they're playing it careful. They're giving the license to two players rather than banking on one horse. And what happens in 1983 at CES, Coleco releases this thing called the Atom Computer. Um, I don't know why they did this, but probably because any serious player at the time was in the PC market. Now, remember, when I say PC, I'm not talking about Windows um, or Mac. We're talking about 8-bit computers. So Coleco tries to get into the 8-bit computer space, which is really the big space. It's not about the, uh, you know black box under the television. It's about the PC in the bedroom. And um, they dropped Donkey Kong. They dropped Donkey Kong without permission, without even telling anybody. They dropped Donkey Kong on the public, and Atari blows up. Atari is ready to sue Coleco, ready to sue Nintendo, um, because they just violated the licensing agreement by dropping a PC version of what Atari had the license for. And that, I do believe, started a slippery slope of Atari not being able to trust Nintendo. That also led to other things that came out later that we didn't know until later. Uh, and this is, by this time, Warner Brothers had bought Atari and Bushnell's out. So it's really a corporate monster. Um, it's obviously driven by uh, suits, bottom line, money, Hollywood, uh, uh, Wall Street. It's not driven by gamers anymore. And 
the CEO gets fired. And I don't know how quickly that happened during this time, but I'm just talking about several failures within the big licensing deal failure that was actually, you know, everything was really fine and dandy for a while there. Atari was going to debut the family com to Atari, uh, America and they were probably going to get the cartridge and PC license for Donkey Kong, which is basically Mario. And um, Kazar, or I guess that's how you say his name, the CEO of Atari was fired, and it later looks like that he was involved in insider training. That was another failure that happened. And another thing was happening at this time. Atari knew that the 2600 was fading away and the 5200 didn't really make it. So they were betting on chip technology and they, they came across something called Maria, which I believe came out of Silicon Valley. And they made an internal decision that they were going to be able to beat the Famicom with the Maria chip. So I really think it was a perfect storm of the gods saying Atari's done. Because... First, they get into a legal battle over the uh, ColecoVision PC Donkey Kong. Which, by the way, if you ever see a ColecoVision Adam version of Donkey Kong, I would pick that up. If you believe that historical is going to rise, which I do believe in the long run, the ColecoVision Adam Donkey Kong, new in box, that, that's, that's a holy grail next to the one on the uh, cover art I'm doing today. But... Um, not only did they have a licensing deal, the biggest licensing deal ever in gaming blow up. Ever in gaming. This is, we're talking about licensing the Famicom and Mario, well, aka Jumpman Donkey Kong, initially. And, and if it took off initially, obviously that divorce would have taken probably years and years and years. And Atari would have reaped all the benefits and E.T. would have never happened. Pac-Man failure would have never happened. Atari would have just kept going and going and going from 8 to 16-bit. But that big licensing deal, they didn't trust each other, and nobody trusted uh, Coleco at the time. Um, we've got a, you know, we've got a three-way, a three-way love triangle that basically blew up uh, at 1983 CES, and then the CEO gets fired because he's doing some, you know, crazy stuff with the stock. Who knows what's going on there? Maybe the licensing deal was being leaked to early stage investors and they were getting on board anticipating that Atari was going to blow up Donkey Kong and receive the Famicom rights. There could have been all kinds of crazy stuff going on with insider trading. We don't know. I didn't go deep into that. Um, that's a story for another day. And then you had them just getting pissed off and going, you know what? Try, try, fail, fail, fail. Let's try to become a master of the chip. Let's bet it all on the Maria. And it's, it's kind of funny that the Famicom's an 8-bit system and, and it blew everything out of the water. I still don't know how that happened because all the gamers I hung out with back in the day, the hardcore gaming crowd was sque squeezing quite a bit of power out of our 8-bit PC machines, Apple IIs, C64s. Um, maybe that's not an 8-bit. I think it's an 8-bit. Well, ma mainly the Atari 800 with boosted up RAM. Um, those were fine. Those were great gaming machines for us. So, after all that happened, you've got basically a moment in time where Coleco comes into the industry and really is the bridge between the Atari age and the Nintendo age, between the golden age, I don't know if we call it the silver age, or the home console age, or, or the 
you know, the living room age is kind of what I call it. It's when gaming moved out of the bedroom, out of the arcade into the living room. So we, we went from arcade to the bedroom to the living room. And since the living room, it's been Nintendo all day long. Sure, Microsoft and Sony made their dent with disc and online gaming. Um, but all that's pretty much happening in the living room. Um, the coders, uh, I don't know how many PC gamers out there are actually investing in uh, WADA PC games. There's very few that you can invest in. I know there's some VGA investors out there. I love big box PC. I know Metal Jesus on YouTube. He loves big box PC. We'll see if big box PC takes off someday. I mean, we'll see if historical takes off someday. But basically, to summarize everything, Mario's origin story is Jumpman. Jumpman was named after Walkman and Pac-Man, which were far bigger at the time when Miyamoto was just a, a young artist coming up. He didn't really know how to program a computer. I don't even think he was a gamer. He wasn't a hardcore arcade gamer. He wasn't a hardcore PC gamer. He was a he was more of what I would call a hippie. And that's kind of what Atari was in the early days as well. It was more of a hippie-ish, you know, Volkswagen bus, smoke pot, drink beer, a sketch on a notepad, talk about characters and story type of thing. I don't know if he did those things, but I'm talking about Atari. It's been confirmed that that's why Silicon Valley uh, high-level billionaires and and uh, millionaires and, and people that run companies like Google and Facebook don't wear neckties is because Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak worked at Atari and they created Apple from the first wooden computer. And that's really where it all started because the Apple II was the Cadillac. That was the gaming machine for years and years and years, even when NES came on. The Apple, could, the Apple II could run circles around pretty much anything. So kudos to Steve Jobs for giving us really the, the first um, gaming thoroughbred workhorse and, that lasted longer than pretty much any other uh, machine I know of because I think it went for almost a 10-year run. Now, thanks to Apple and Steve Jobs, we have a culture on the West Coast that takes chances and doesn't wear ties and doesn't just look at the bottom line when they're developing software or websites or things like Facebook, TikTok. TikTok's in China, excuse me, Facebook, Google, uh, LinkedIn, um, eBay, these type of games that we play every day, these are developed in an environment where the user is important and it's not just about the bottom line. And that's exactly what Miyamoto was doing when he was inventing a love triangle. He was inventing a story. He wasn't thinking about the bottom line. They were reworking an old cabinet failure. Um, they were trying to, you know, save money to, to avoid licensing Popeye, which actually actually turned into a game later on. But that's a story for another day. So out of all these big three failures, the radar scope, the Popeye, the licensing deals, there was one more um, when Nintendo was uh, just a little company up in up in Washington. I do believe they only started with like five employees and they got up to 10, maybe 20. They were pretty much an arcade company pumping out cabinets. Uh, you know, getting boards and cabinets and parts from Japan and reworking the art and the uh, English and all that. And then, you know, calling up bars and and arcades and cafes and pizza joints and getting in Nintendo cabinets into the uh, places first and getting those quarters into the system, getting that cash flow. That all came before Famicom and NES. That's really where it came from. And back then, the rumor is they couldn't pay their rent in uh, Washington. 
and they were behind on the rent and the owner of the building's name was Mario and he was a really cool guy. I guess he was an Italian American um, that let them slide and uh, just like they named the, the Kirby Adventure games after John Kirby that defended the King Kong Hollywood uh, lawsuit that could have brought down Nintendo and they created a whole character and world and series after John Kirby the lawyer called Kirby like Kirby's Adventure with the pink face, that's John's face, they named Jumpman after Mario, the landlord that gave him a break. So looking back, Nintendo's a kind company in a way. I know they get uh, a lot of heat for, for exclusivity deals and uh, high-quality standards, but they they played it fair. They gave Coleco and Atari a chance. Um, they recognized that their, their, their lawyer that saved the company in America and their landlord that saved the company in America from a couple failures there or near death scenarios, um, deserved recognition and they're going to live on forever. So looking back, it's easy to say, Oh, ET was the downfall of the industry. Oh, Pac-Man's graphics were crap and, and nobody, nobody wanted to play that stuff. But if you look at it from an investment standpoint, Pac-Man and E.T. sold millions of copies. If you combine those two cartridges together, they probably made more money than most any other cartridge in the golden age. Um, I, I, can't, I can't agree that E.T. and Pac-Man brought down Atari. I really think that insider trading... The, the Coleco surprise at 1983 CES, the Maria chip, the uh, licensing deal that got delayed for the Popeye comic strip, Miyamoto getting, uh, you know, coming into the picture without any failures or successes as kind of just a fresh blank slate. All these things to me are much more powerful factors than dumping ET cartridges in the New Mexico desert because that's an afterthought. That's not going into the development process, into the investing process, into hiring lawyers to pound out licensing deals across the Pacific Ocean, get on an airplane and stuff like that. That's just filling up a truck with cartridges and say, dump them in the New Mexico desert. That has nothing to do with the future of the industry coming out of the golden age. So I disagree that E.T. was the downfall of the industry. I really think there's a story behind these stories, behind the story of Jumpman, behind the story of Mario that we still don't know about. I think it probably goes back to counting your chickens before they hatch on, you know, on those planes going back and forth from Washington and Silicon Valley and Tokyo where everything was fine and dandy. People were at a you know, at the bar, at the uh, at the uh, conference room, they were they were doing. It was all verbal. The contracts were just about inked. We're talking about major, major contracts that would have changed gaming forever. They were basically inked. They were done. They were a done deal until Coleco dropped the bomb. So, when you look back on investment pieces, you can either invest in the most popular such as Super Mario 3, uh, A God of War, um, A Tomb Raider, uh, Fortnite, Minecraft, or you could invest in the most infamous games, 
You could go invest in the highest graded ET, the highest graded 8-bit Pac-Man, original first print. The only one I've seen on Heritage has been like a 5 or a 5.5. Five. And then today's piece. This is, to me, the most infamous and the most historic piece in the timeline for video game investing. So let's go into what we can capture from this, from this real bridge or valley of death between the golden age and the silver age or the arcades and the room the bedrooms with young coders that go on to create these billion dollar companies to gaming in the living room let's go over the piece for today's cover art because ebay might delete this the seller is called pixel perfect 80s that's P-I-X-E-L-P-E-R-F-E-C-T-8-0-S. They have over 3,130 feedback, 100% positive. Looks like a very reliable seller. They're out of Albany, New York. eBay item number 233-886-818-272. Titled Donkey Kong, ColecoVision, WADA. Holy Grail, I completely agree. This is the Holy Grail. This is far beyond matte sticker, gloss sticker, ultra rare, new and sealed, 7.0 NS, ColecoVision, boxed. And uh, here's the deal. This was a pack-in for Coleco who got the license from Nintendo to do cartridges of Jumpman, a.k.a. Mario, bring Donkey Kong to the American market, introduce the American market to Mario, and here's the kicker. If you are, a quote unquote, if you are, this is not the common Intellivision version you're seeing. This is not the Red Box 2600 version, which according to Wikipedia came out six months after. I'm talking six months after. Now, SMB Left Bros and Right Bros, Left Bros was on the shelf for one month. So Right Bros came out one month later than Left Bros. Atari 2600 and a television Donkey Kong came out six months after ColecoVision uh, pack-in slash a couple retail copies. And this is years before the black box uh, Super Mario and Donkey Kong and Junior and Math. Quote, unquote, if you're a ColecoVision collector, you instantly know how insanely rare this game is to find. For those of you unaware, the Donkey Kong game came as a pack-in. And I've asked uh, certified collectibles owned by CGC about this. And he told me that it's a pack-in. And uh, I told him it's rumored that there's a box out there. And he said, you know, he can't confirm that. And this is a confirmation. This is a confirmation podcast that there was a retail version of Mario number one American in 1982. We're talking about 1982. It hit arcades, I do believe, in 1981. We're talking about three years before Matt Sticker. Um, quote, unquote, nobody purchased a copy of Donkey Kong. Okay, let's think about that. Coleco is a small little company. They're putting out a 16-bit in the golden age. People might have a bad taste on ET. And by the way, in the golden age, gaming was all about graphics. Um you know, the hardcore gamers didn't do the 2600 because the Atari 400-800 had better graphics and better RAM capabilities. 
Um, we, we loaded games with cassettes and floppies. We didn't do cartridges because cassettes and floppies always had better games. More data, more RAM equals better games. So I'm assuming that the ColecoVision had better graphics, and that's probably what they were selling. And from what I understand, the ColecoVision Donkey Kong was very good. So if you bought the ColecoVision console, you already got a copy of Donkey Kong. Why would you go to the store and buy a retail copy of Donkey Kong? And that's why if you go search eBay, which I've been doing for months, and I'm so sorry, Robin. I had to let the cat out of the bag. You know me. Full disclosure, 100% transparency. This is confirmation that the retail version of Donkey Kong exists. I know there's old guard collectors that are going to hate me for this podcast because this is a deep, dark secret. This is a really, really, this is probably the deepest, darkest secret in game investing. There are Donkey Kong, Mario, first appearances that are dated 1982 that are six months earlier than atari and years earlier than nes so if you purchase the donkey kong um if you purchase a ColecoVision, you're an anomaly i mean he says the only reason to buy one would be if your kid brother stepped on your cartridge and cracked it open and broke the board there is no reason to buy the retail donkey kong so the thesis is they are very, 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 very rare. What is very, very, very rare? Well, there's only one copy that hit the market in the last year, and that's the one I'm looking at right now. Um, according to Wikipedia, I believe that they sold millions of copies of Donkey Kong. You know, it wasn't like Pac-Man and the seven or eight million. I would guess two to three million. Keep in mind Super Mario Brothers 3 sold in the 17 million range. I'm assuming that the Wright Brothers is over 16 million or something. I don't know. Maybe it's 1 million left, 16 million right. Um, let's say ColecoVision is 3 million pack-in and, I don't know, 100,000 retail box? And you can bet that each retail box got ripped open because I guess if you lost the pack-in, you're buying that Donkey Kong because you love the game. You lost the game or it got destroyed or eaten by a, a dog. I don't know. Burned down. Who knows? You're buying that retail uh, ColecoVision first appearance of Jumpman to play the game. So is there one copy on the planet sealed? Is this the only copy on the planet sealed? If so, this 7.0 is worth the $25,000 they're asking now, you know me, I'm a bull, and I see this market moving into historical. I could be wrong. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not a licensed uh, investment uh, broker. I'm not a CPA. This is my opinion only under free speech. But I believe that this is the holy grail in video game investing for American console gaming. Not PC, not Famicom, not, you know, if the historical timeline goes back into Famicom, you can throw this podcast out the window and you start studying Japanese. Um, but if you're talking about American console, I believe that this is the holy grail. If I had a, a choice between a matte sticker, well, you probably couldn't get a matte sticker uh, sealed for $25,000. Um, let us say you could get an, a new inbox let's say like a, a, a 3.5 for 25,000 uh, compared to this 70NS ColecoVision. Obviously, I'm biased. I grew up in the golden age. I never saw a crash. 
I went off to college in 1985, August. I never saw a video game crash. I kept gaming like crazy as an arcade gamer from 85 through, you know, 2020. I was a gamer. I never saw a crash. It never crashed as far as I'm concerned. I never played E.T. I never played Pac-Man on the 2600. I never really played the 2600. That was for the living room, for the family, for the moms, the dads, the uncles, the kids. The gamers were in the bedroom playing PC. Even though I didn't play ColecoVision, number one, it was a 16-bit revolutionary console for one moment in the historical timeline. And number two, as far as the legal story behind the story, the lore, the Miyamoto, the, the Super Scope, the Nintendo of Redmond skeleton crew not being able to pay rent, Mario landlord, John Kirby lawyer saving uh, the lawsuit from Hollywood, etc. The Mar the Maria uh, scandal, the CES surprise. When you look at all that, this is a priceless game. This is one of those pieces of artwork that you say is priceless, kind of like Starry Nights by Van Gogh, who only sold one painting while he was alive. He was a pauper. He died penniless, just like Tesla did. And uh, when you look back, those are the stories that last centuries. Those are the stories. Things like the Fairchild, an African-American developer inventing the cartridge-based system. Those are the stories that last 100 years. 200 years, ColecoVision, you know, making the biggest mistake they've ever made, and, and they're gone at CES. But at CES, they were talk of the show. That night, I'm sure they went out on the town, and and they were, you know, they were the equivalent of going viral in today, today's modern age. So when you look back, don't overlook historic and infamous and significant. It's not always iconic, popular, and nostalgic. And that's why I'm going to leave you with the 10-box system. Catalyst, rarity, scarcity, nostalgia, popular, iconic, significant. And significant can be in many different ways, not just a significant home console game. Historic, artistic, look at this beautiful uh, uh, yellow starburst. It says high-resolution video cartridge for ColecoVision. Obviously, they're dropping this because they know, Coleco knows for one moment in gaming history, they had the home console as far as graphics goes. And back in the day, it was all about graphics. And then we have the last box called Hype, and that is the wild card. So before you drop, uh, you know, the price of a car on ColecoVision Donkey Kong, ask yourself, is there someone in the social media community that's going to hype ColecoVision someday? Because I don't see a catalyst coming up for this piece unless someone writes a book about the video game crash, the story behind the story. And uh, that's actually a good idea for a book. Hmm. The video game crash, the story behind the stories behind the story. And the first sentence is, it wasn't E.T., it wasn't Pac-Man, it wasn't even the 2600. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you for listening to Game Investing Radio with Hopper. Play life like a video game. Nintendo went through three massive multi-million dollar failures and came up with Mario. Don't worry if you make a mistake and buy a ColecoVision and it drops the next day and, and you're, you accidentally overpay for a first-to-market, first-mover um, premium on Heritage.
have fun, click the buy button, just like the German streamer Montana Black. Try, try, try again. Get through enough failures and setbacks and become a master.